been a good night of worshiping Jesus already, and we get to continue to do that, but doing it through the opening of his word. So uh, why don't you grab your Bibles if you got those? If you got a physical copy, got an electronic copy, want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you and go with me to the book of Titus. Uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Uh, we've been talking this year about this vision of being a growing church. What we've realized is that a growing church is a community that's being shaped by the gospel. And as we've been diving into the book of Titus, just kind of the background is important for us to, to keep in mind, like, what's happening? Why is this letter being written? Well, Paul had sent his boy Titus down to the island of Crete to kind of oversee a, a, a network of church plants. And he wanted all of these church plants just to get established and healthy and growing. And, and so Titus, man, he's got his work cut out, and, uh, on, out for him. The, the first thing that he's got on his to-do list is he needs to appoint elders. you got to make sure that we've got godly leaders that are in place overseeing, taking care, uh, watching over uh, these churches. And what we saw in chapter 1 is they needed to really be the ones setting the example and teaching sound doctrine and uh, silencing all of this false teaching that was going on. Apparently, this was all, already a big deal. And these false teachers, these, these lies, it needed to be stopped. And that's part of the reason why Paul's like, man, we need, uh, we need gospel-centered elders here to make sure that the gospel gets really clear in these churches learning uh, like we did last week. We've got to do gospel math, right? But then look what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word accords really means to be, uh, to, to be fitting or, or proper. But what's crazy is, uh, instead of going into some theological dissertation on the finer points of salvation and, and sin and all of that, uh, instead of doing that, Paul actually launches into the practical application of the gospel. Not, not just theology, like he's not just interested in what they know, but in what they do in light of what they know. Be doers of the word, not just hearers only, right? James 1.22. So, so what he's trying to help us understand is that knowledge leads to action, and this is how the gospel shapes you. This is how the gospel shapes our community. And what he's going to do as we read through this text, he's going to lay out all these different demographics. You've got older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and he's just basically emphasizing that everybody in the church is supposed to be applying the gospel directly to your individual lives. See, this is how, listen, this is how we become a community that is shaped by the gospel when you are being shaped by the gospel, and it's changing uh, your life. So here's the big idea I want you to see tonight before we dive into this. It's this. You have a role to play so that our community is shaped by the gospel and reaches our culture with the gospel, okay? Uh, there's kind of two folds here. We really want to be shaped by this ourselves and reaching our culture uh, with the gospel. So I want you to keep that in mind, knowing that you have a role of responsibility uh, in this as we read, okay? Uh, Titus chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 10. He says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, 
and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may, watch this, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Love this. There, let, me, let me give you two ways that your role has impact. Okay, Here's the first. Note this. Your life can influence others in the church. You know that? Your life can influence others in this church. And I just want to make a couple of observations. First is that, that like this, there's this common theme of the impact that one believer has on another. And these relationships, these, these roles are meant to intentionally help others grow. And they're responding, especially, you know, really they're, they're teaching and modeling by example what this looks like and, and how they respond to one another. And I want you to notice it's not just the elders. Did you notice that? There's an emphasis here. This ministry is for everyone. There's an expectation that everyone is playing their role in discipleship, which means you have a ministry in the community of Fairfax Bible Church. God has put you here, and we are, we are so glad that you're part of our church family. We need you. And there's this expectation that your life can actually influence others for good because of that. But another observation, I just want to point this out here. As you're looking through this, as we read through this, you noticed, and I know you did, there are gender and age distinctions. Did you notice that? Like older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Like the Bible makes no apology and doesn't shy away from this. That God intends for these distinct genders and ages and stages of life for the, for the discipleship and the health of the church. Can, can we just pause and talk about that for a minute? In fact, there's a few times um, tonight as we're going through this text, I think we're just going to need to like, hit time out for just a minute. Let's, let's just talk about that. The reason I want to talk about that is because right now, uh, there, there are some really loud voices in our culture that are currently trying to disciple us with their agenda and, and indoctrinate us with gender confusion. You notice that? One of the ways they're doing that is by just trying to make it normal. Some of the rejection of biblical moral norms, what, what God says is right. Let's, let's go the exact opposite and let's just pretend like that's normal. So I think we need to state the obvious here. It's important for us to say this. God assigns gender by his design of making some male and others female kind of discouraging that we have to state the obvious, isn't it? 
I think, discouraging because what should be obvious, because we're just like, like it's plainly known by creation, is, according to Romans 1, truth that our culture wants to suppress. They want to push that down and ignore it in their complete rejection of divine authority. We don't want to listen to that. We don't want to hear what God has to say on that. But we have an opportunity to stand up and hold the truth, right? We, we watch this, what? With, with courage and compassion, we value the dignity of every single individual just as God has designed them. And by doing that, we actually honor and praise God as a good creator. Like we're like, God, you're awesome in this. You feel that? You felt that, right? I felt it. That was pretty powerful. Here's what we get to say when we're looking around and saying, listen, we know how God has designed you. It means we get to say, you are loved. Just as you are, like, by God's design, even with all of your brokenness, and even if there's much confusion, like, we're all in need of the grace of God, and it should blow us away that God loves any of us. But what an awesome truth that we get to hold this out. If you're an older man, older woman, younger man, younger woman, you are loved. And we need a fixed standard of truth, not a, not a, a shifting, acceptable, politically correct standard that's subjective to the opinions and, and the empty promises of the culture, but, but a final word from the Creator in this book that is being humbly proclaimed by people who love unconditionally as we have been loved but who stand on this, I think that actually gives the world some hope. Because what we get to do, we're, we, we get to bring the invitation. We're all invited to experience something better. That, that there is redemption and restoration from our brokenness with the promise that in Christ, God is for us and his ways are always best. We never have to apologize for this. When, when God's word says this, this is his design. His design is always best and it is for our good and his glory. And we get a opportunity to declare that the genesis chapter one he made them male and female he created them and he does not value one over the other and notice also in this text he's not kicking the old folks to the curb like they've had their time like it's always better to be younger like that's not the attitude that we want to have in our church Titus chapter 2 actually gives us these, these gender and age distinctions that have distinct God-given roles to play in the design for the discipleship within the church community that's being shaped by the gospel. And we need every single one of you. And older men, he's going to tell us, older men are teaching the younger men. Older women teaching the younger women. And all of us interacting with each other in such a way to display and highlight the power of the gospel to transform lives in a community of grace. So let's look at these, these distinctions. Can we do that? Older men. Are you an older man? I know this is like somewhat subjective. I'm pretty sure that like having no hair, sorry Thomas, like you, this, I think this qualifies. Okay, so I'm just going to include myself in this one. But here, here's what he says, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, 
self-control. So there's an expectation that, 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 that you can see wisdom in their life. There's someone that you can actually, they're dignified. You can, you can look up to them. You can respect them. It's not somebody who's controlled by their fleshly passions and desires, but they're disciplined. Why? Why? Well, because they're sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. They believe God's word. They love this book. And you can tell because they love God. And they love others well. And they're unwavering in their commitment to following him as disciples. Hey, guys. Are you being an example of a godly man? Someone who is pursuing Christ. Like, I know you're not perfect. I'm not either. But we're pursuing Christ with everything we have. Can we say with Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What about older women? Are you an older woman? Honestly, I have no idea if we have any older women in in our congregation. Because I've been told and have learned that it is never appropriate to ask a woman her age, right? So there's great mystery around this demographic. I don't know. Maybe we do. Okay. I think the reason, okay, so the reason that's a little bit of a joke in our culture is because unfortunately, and I do say unfortunately, I think we have, we, we've disparaged the wisdom of those who are older. I got to tell you that we can't do that anymore. There is something so beautiful and necessary and valuable in our community, verse 3, that the older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. That's actually the same standard for the guys, okay? So, so they're, they're, they're seeing, they're living in light of the gospel, seeing their actions being changed by Jesus. They're not the same anymore. They're a new creation. And you can especially see it, apparently, in, in them being careful to control their words and their passions. He says, says it's not slanderers, not, not slaves to wine, I guess they were used to seeing that in their culture. Like, this must have been a problem. Like, grandma's getting wasted. And, and what he's trying to help them understand is, like, we can't live like that anymore. There's a difference. We're going to see a difference in the ladies in the church, okay? But notice verse 3. Look at, look at this. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Ladies, ladies, you are called to do this. You are called to teach. And I know a lot of you, because I've talked with many of you about this one, I know, like, your question is instantly, you're like, well, wait, wait, time out, time out. Are, are you going to, like, start filming me for, like, ladies' Bible studies? Or, like, you're, you're saying, like, I might have to, like, get up and be the one up front actually talking in a ladies' Bible study? Yes, that might mean what it means. But it doesn't have to. I think, honestly, the emphasis is less on the format, right, like being in front of a crowd, and more on the function that God intends for you to study your Bible and to learn to apply it to taking what he's teaching you in his word and putting it into action in your life and then passing it on to others so that they know how to live as godly women too. And this can be as simple as, as sitting on the couch across from a sister in Christ or, or sitting at a table across from the table having coffee with them and just asking, how are you doing? I mean, seriously, how are you, how, how's life going? How are you doing in your relationship with Christ? And then getting around, talking around God's word and applying it. Maybe, maybe you actually commit to reading some passages of scripture together and you get back together, have a phone call or whatever the case may be, and just discuss what are you reading? What are you, what are you learning? What stood out to you? 
Maybe it means reading through uh, some books and discipleship resources. And you know what? In fact, we've even committed some, some money from our small group budget to help cover the cost of some discipleship resources. Because I know some of you are like, man, I want more of those kind of relationships. We do too. We want more of this happening in our church. If you're interested in that, talk to your small group leader. We want to see more of these discipling relationships happening organically. Ladies, listen. You can influence the lives of others in this church. You have a role to play and a responsibility, actually an opportunity to be a part of seeing the flourishing of godly women here in Fairfax. So older women get to teach and, and model that. What about, what about younger women? Are you a younger woman? Well, I think because the older women are supposed to teach, the first implication is, are you listening? Are you actually receiving the training from older women? Are, are, are you, do you seek it out? Do you value what they teach you? And are, are you, That takes some humility, let's be honest, to actually prioritize that, not just going to the mommy blogs and the Instagram influencers, but to know, like, I need, I need the women in my church. I need the women in my small group. I need to see how God has been working in their lives, the wisdom that they've gleaned, the, gleaned the experiences that God has taught them in his word. I need that. And here's what you're going to learn, verse 4. You need to learn to, to love their husbands and children. Because generally, that's the first, plant, uh, the first place, the, the chance that you get to apply God's word. When you're reading something in scripture, and it's a relational instruction there, um, obviously, uh, probably the first people that you're going to have to deal with that are the people at home. Your husband, your kids. And, and honestly, this also speaks to the priority, the, the importance, the undeniably important role that women play in the home. And every dad and every kid is saying, Amen. Man, we need mom. I need Carissa. Notice, by the way, I included her in the younger women. I'm in the older. I'm the older guy. So, okay, she's she's younger women. Let's just. I just want to make state that on record. Now, I, I realize this for some of you, um, God may not have called you to this yet, or ever, and that's okay. Because you're still called to learn to live as a godly woman, and we love you too, and we're so glad that you're part of our church family. Here's what he says, verse 5, the younger women are learned to be self-controlled and pure, which is actually the same standard for everybody, right? Like, like we, people are going to notice when you're not participating in all the drunken sexual immorality that everybody just, it's expected. This is what we do. Verse 5, you're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Okay, time out. I knew it was coming, right? I told you. Pause. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Working it. Does this, mean, does this mean that the Bible says that women can't have jobs in the workforce? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And no, that's not what the Bible is teaching. I mean, just check out the Proverbs 31 woman. She's held up as this excellent wife. That woman is no joke. I'm telling you, she is working hard. She's creative. She's using her gifts. She's using her talents. She's entrepreneurial. She, she's conducting successful business with merchants and, and fields and vineyards. But she does it all without neglecting her primary responsibility and calling to her husband and her children. There's a special thing that women get to do in this. And so God is not prohibiting women from having jobs in the workforce outside of the home, but they must be working at home. You get that? 
Like, can't neglect this. This is the primary way that God wants to use you in the responsibility of the care for your family. We're so thankful for the women that are dedicating their lives to this. Now, let me just say, by the way, this doesn't uh, negate the fact that the men have a responsibility too here, right? Just as, as godly husbands who love their wives sacrificially, and actually they have the direct instruction in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, hey, fathers, uh, bring up your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? They also have to prioritize their responsibility in the home too. But there's a different role. He, he says here, verse 5, they're to learn to be submissive to their own husbands. Yikes. This, this, this could get us in trouble here, but, but let me just make it clear. This does not mean that all women are submissive to all men. Got that? But there's a role that wives have to play in the home. It's, it's a, a disposition to yield to the leadership of their husbands. It's a willingness to recognize that his head's on the chopping block. He's got this call and this responsibility, and I'm, I'm willing to follow. Not a doormat to tyrannical power and authority. And you certainly don't follow him into sin. But, but it's a, a willingness to follow his leadership. Now, this does put her in a vulnerable position, which is why God actually said in Genesis chapter 3 that she was going to really struggle with that. But, but it's really why it's so important for men to be pursuing godliness and following hard after Christ. Because men have a, 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 a different job a different role in the home. You know what men get to do? Men have a different role. Men get to die. It's pretty awesome. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. So men get to lead by being the first ones to die. They get to lead sacrificially and love sacrificially, dying to themselves. And my preference is where I'm learning to prefer the interest of my wife. I want what's best for her. I am supremely concerned, not with using her, not dominating, not being in control, not being right, but to be used in her life to make her more like Jesus because of my godly leadership. God help us. But see, when husbands and wives, when they play their distinct roles well, it, they, they get to display the gospel in this unique relationship. Everybody should be, be looking at the actions and the attitudes of a husband and go, wow, that's how Jesus loves us. And then they turn and see the reactions and the attitudes and the actions of the wife and say, that's how we submit to Christ. And it's a community being shaped by the gospel. Well, what about all the, uh, we got the older men, older women, younger women. What about all the younger men? All the wives are like, man, I hope he says something about watching sports and playing video games right now. Okay, verse 6, look at this. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. You notice that word keeps propping up here. Like, 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 almost like God wants all of us to be self-controlled. There's a massive warning not to go the way of the culture and just indulge in fleshly passions. Younger men, he's saying, they need to learn from the older men, striving to follow the example of the elders. Remember, we, we saw this in chapter 1, the, the godly character that's supposed to describe an elder. 
That's something that all men should be aspiring to. So that they can grow and become godly examples too. He says here that you show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Don't get too carried away, guys. That's not talking about the modeling industry, okay? Like, clearly that's not what it's saying, but I am not a model, right? No surprise there. But we are in the way that we live. Hey, guys, listen, listen. There is nothing more manly than becoming more like Jesus. Your life and your example can influence others in the church. And do you see what's happening here in this text? When, when each of us are faithfully playing the role that God has given us, there's a generational impact that actually preserves the integrity of our community and ensures that we're a, we're, we're a community that's going to continue to be shaped by the gospel. So your role is not insignificant. Even if you're just impacting like one other person, two other people, and you might feel like it's not that big of a deal, but it's so important. Be faithful to that because there's a multiplying effect when each of us is pursuing Christ together in the roles that he's asked us to play. Get that? Okay, so there's, uh, that's, that's the first way that your role has impact. Let me give you the second. Note this. Your life can reach unbelievers outside the church. Okay, so we've been focusing on uh, what's happening inside in our community. But when we do this right, it actually has ramifications out in the world while we're trying to live sent with the gospel. And notice what he's saying. It silences critics and false teachers when we say what's true and when we live what we say. He says that verse 5. The end of verse 5. When, when, hey, when, ladies, when you're doing this and you're doing it well, the word of God will not be reviled. Verse 8, when we're following the example and pursuing Christ, sound speech that cannot be condemned and opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Listen, they're watching. We are being watched, so it's important what we say and what we do. And no believer, no believer is excluded from the responsibility of living out the power of the gospel to change lives, even Slaves. Did he just say what I think? Yes, it did. Verse 9. Look at it. Look at it. It says, bond servants. That word really means slaves. Um, all right, so let's talk about that. Can we time out there? Uh, let, let's, let's pause because that's a little disconcerting. Um, when, when we see something like that, we're like, what, what's, what's going on here? Like, what? Why is he talking to, to slaves, and, and how are we supposed to feel about this? Okay, Some people, um, by the way, will point out, and, and correctly, that in that culture, slavery didn't always look like what we think about because of the evils in our nation's history. And that's true. Like there, there, there were things like uh, indentured uh, servitude that was just a little bit different. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that oppressive and abusive slavery did exist as well. But regardless of what kind of slaves Paul's talking about here, let's be really clear. Slavery is wrong. The Bible does not condone slavery, even though it, it existed institutionally in that culture. It's protected by government rights. This is, this is some of the things that the, the early church is having to deal with here. 
I'm really thankful for the thoughts of Dr. Esau McCauley uh, from Wheaton College in this. And he was, you know, we, we, we generally, we see things like this. We're seeing injustice that's, that's, that's being uh, perpetuated by uh, governing authorities. Oftentimes, we, the first time we think about like, how to deal with the government, we run to things like Romans 13, which is good. We need that, that, that we, would, uh, we would be subject to governing authorities. But that instruction does not negate the need to stand and fight for justice when those governing authorities are failing to operate justly in their providentially designed function to avenge evil and protect the innocent. That's the point of why he put them there. You shouldn't have to be afraid of authority when you're innocent, when you're doing good. So what do we do? How do we, how do we respond to that? Uh, Dr. McCauley actually gave some examples of this where the, the, the Old Testament prophets were criticizing the kings, the, the government, for their injustice. And, and, and how he, uh, Daniel called out King Nebuchadnezzar to stop mistreating the oppressed. So we actually have a more robust framework, a biblical framework that gives us the freedom to speak out. To provide what Dr. McCauley says, a, a, a robust, sustained critique of unjust authority. We don't just roll over and say, well, I mean, I guess we can't do anything. We just got to submit to the government, especially when we're in positions of freedom and position with the power to act on behalf of those who are not and who need help. Because the gospel is antithetical to injustice. But it also gives us the hope that, that one day justice will be, injustice will be eradicated. No more. But we also have this responsibility to be praying now, standing for it now as we're praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. We want to see that. But one day we will. But we come to passages like this, we're like, wait, we kind of wish that Paul would just come right out and like say like, hey guys, if you're a slave, like revolt. Come on, let's, let's band together. Like, but that's not what he does. He doesn't outright condemn slavery here, even though he does demonstrate elsewhere, especially in the book of Philemon, that the gospel essentially completely guts the institution of slavery because we are made brothers and sisters in Christ with an obligation to, to love and to value one another. We're not better than one another. But what he, what he does here, he flips the perspective because he's saying that, that slaves are responsible to live in such a way that their masters will see their need for a savior. So, so think about it. The slave needs justice because he's disadvantaged on earth. There's no doubt about that. But the slave master needs divine mercy because he's disadvantaged spiritually and he's in danger of the judgment of God. And Paul is saying, hey guys, you have an opportunity to display the gospel that can save him. And then that gospel would make them brothers. Adopted into the same family with no division, no superiority, united in love for one another. He's saying, I want you to live in such a way, verse 10, do you see it? Look at, look at verse 10. I want you to do this in a way that you are called to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You get by the way that you live, your actions, your, your attitudes, all that you do in your life, you make the gospel attractive even to unbelievers. 
When I think about the, the word adorned, I think about my youngest daughter, JC, who still loves to get all dressed up in her little fancy, beautiful dresses, and she loves glitter. Oh, man, does she love glitter. She actually loves to just wipe glitter all over me, but she loves to make things sparkle. Hey, listen, this is what we get to do with the gospel. We get to make the gospel sparkle and shine, make it attractive to the world when we live it out. When people see that Jesus has changed me, that there's a difference in my attitude about what I'm going through right now. And, and, and there's, there, there's a way that, that I think about others before myself. There's, there's joy and there's passion in my life because, I, man, i got a purpose for why I'm here. People look at that and it makes the gospel beautiful. It makes the gospel attractive. And I think what Paul is trying to help us understand, if slaves can do this in the worst of circumstances... And we're all called to this. That we would adorn the gospel by the way that we live. As you grow in your love for Christ, he's going to make you more like himself so that your life matches the message that you're sharing with unbelievers outside the church and your living sin. God, help us. Father, I pray that you would make these things true in us. God, make us, make us a community that's being shaped by the gospel, that we love one another, we pursue you, we're pursuing holiness, we want to be like you. And God, would you help us to reach our culture with the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may it, may, may it not just be a message that, that we speak, but Lord, may, may, that, may that message be matched by a life that demonstrates we're not the same anymore. We are a new creation in Christ. God, we need help with these things. We just acknowledge we, we want to be a community that is being shaped, growing to be more like Christ. We just rest in this, God. Can we just take a minute to rest in the fact that my standing before you has nothing to do with what kind of week I had. I don't have to do anything today to get to, to try to impress you. Lord, you love me. You love us. We have your favor. And it's only because of what Jesus has done for us. We give you praise. Thank you for loving us. Shape us help us to reach our culture with this awesome, glorious news.